Turn in your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 3 tonight. I appreciate that good singing, amen, and I appreciate the goodness of the Lord. 1 Timothy chapter number 3, and uh, I'm glad you came back, amen, and uh, I think on Andy Griffith, they, they said uh, after Andy had eaten his fourth bowl of white beans, said, eating speaks louder than talking, amen, and uh, so I'm glad you've come back for another bowl. I trust that God will speak to your heart tonight. And uh, I want, if I can, to uh, spend a few minutes thinking a little bit more about uh, this this idea of the incarnation. You know, we uh, it is the Christmas season, and uh, Brother Seth was saying that's why you all singing so good tonight, that Christmas cheer. And uh, I dispute that, but uh, that's okay. I just think you love the Lord, amen. And uh, <clears throat> I, th- I don't think Christmas has anything to do with anything good, amen. So... Uh, I, I think instead you just love the Lord, but it is the Christmas season, and uh, you know during the Christmas season we spent a little bit of time this morning talking about what this season is all about, and uh, what it is about, whatever the other trappings that may surround it uh, are, it's about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The incarnation we gave a little definition this morning, and uh, I think the Bible gives probably the best definition, most concise. In Isaiah 7:14, when it says, "Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign: Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel." The New Testament tells us what that word Emmanuel means. It means God with us. You know, that's what this time of the year is all about: God with us. What a miracle! God with us. Uh, where would your life be without that idea of God being with you? And uh, we gave this little definition of the incarnation this morning. I'll read it to you before we read our text. The incarnation is that the eternally existent second person of the triune Godhead indwelt the sinless body prepared for him by the conception of the Holy Spirit in a virgin's womb. He was born in Bethlehem in the land of Israel and lived a perfect sinless life. He is 100% God as he has always and eternally been. Due to this miraculous entrance into time and humanity, he is also a hundred percent man. This event and ongoing reality, I can't stress that enough. This event and ongoing reality constitutes the truth of the incarnation. You know, he didn't quit being man when he died on the cross. The Bible says there's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's still a hundred percent man. Just as he was always 100% God. You say, preacher, why is that important? So that he can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace. If we thought he couldn't still feel what we go through, we wouldn't come boldly to the throne of grace. Uh, but he does still feel what we feel. And uh, he is in a glorified body. Uh, he is in a body that doesn't tire and it doesn't weaken. Uh, but nonetheless, he, he still identifies with humanity, even to this very day. And so the incarnation is not just a theological event of the far-flung past, but it is a present-day reality that transforms the way that we live. We said this this morning, the incarnation is a truth of historical fact. Uh, no serious historian, no serious historian, would dismiss the incarnation. There's too much evidence for it. Uh, Too much evidence in uh, secular records throughout history. Too much evidence in uh, that which remains today, having been built upon that which must have transpired 
back then. There's just too much evidence for it. Uh, and so the incarnation, it's a historical fact. Not only that, it's a theological force. What you believe about the incarnation will change what you believe about everything else. And if you're wrong about this fact, there's almost no end to the error to which your doctrine can can devolve. I mean, if you don't believe literally in the incarnation, uh, there's a lot of things a man could disagree uh, in good faith about, but a person can't be a Bible believer and deny the incarnation. Can't do it. You can't uh, claim to know Christ as your Savior and deny the incarnation because he couldn't have been a Savior if he hadn't first been incarnate. And so the incarnation is a fundamental of the faith. And then we said that the incarnation, it is a truth of practical faith. In other words, it, it changes the way that we live. Now, probably the the most disconnected of, of, of this truth to the message was maybe felt this morning. And you say, why is that, preacher? Well, because I assume most of the folks here this morning was already saved. But, you know, recognizing that the incarnation was God's solution to man's fall and man's foe and for man's forgiveness. Uh, the reason you got born again is because you believe that God sent a Savior. You would have never got saved if you didn't believe that. And so, though it may be uh, a few months past or a few years past, my spiritual odometer rolled past 25 years this year. Just a few days ago, December 1st, 25 years since I had bowed the knee and come up a child of the king. And, uh, you know, however long it's been, the most transformative moment in your life happened because the incarnation took practical foothold in your life and you put your faith in that reality. So the incarnation is not just something to live in the index of theology books but it's something that's to live in our everyday life. And maybe if this morning it was felt most loosely disconnected from that theme, maybe the message tonight will help us to feel it more deeply connected. First Timothy chapter 3 tonight. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker. That one's tough sometimes. Not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree, 
and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. You might have thought the pages of my Bible got stuck together and we want where our text is. But look with me at verse 14. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God, Lord. What a blessing it is. I pray you'd help us tonight to rightly divide and to rightly apply and to understand the word of truth. Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, we would not find ourselves merely adding to our doctrinal portfolio, but having hearts change, Lord, as we've fallen more in love with your son, Jesus Christ, and as he has gained more ground in our life. Lord, we love you. Bless our time together now. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I went out of my way to read the entirety of this chapter. There's two reasons for that. One, I'm reminded of what Dr. Tom Malone said. He said when he preaches, he always reads lots of Scripture. That way, if you get persecuted in one passage, you can flee to another. Amen. But I'm not sure the text tonight would lend uh, to much refuge. Rather, the reason that I read the entirety of this passage is, I think, to gain a right appreciation of verse number 16, which is our text. I think we have to understand the framework into which it is set. You've often heard me say that if you don't know the Bible in context, you don't know the Bible at all. We made the comment this morning in examining the context of Genesis 3 and the Incarnation that it is it is not for no reason that the Incarnation, the very first mention of it is set, laid almost like a diamond on a backdrop of velvet to show all of the beautiful facets and and angles and cuts of it, it is laid there in juxtaposition to give us an appreciation of the magnitude of it. Well, here in 1 Timothy chapter number 3, rather than being a backdrop of velvet for that diamond, this is almost like a finely crafted setting into which this diamond of a verse, verse 16, is placed. It gives us a framework through which to understand the impact of the incarnation in our lives. Now, we've already read all these verses. I'll not take time to go back through them. But these are practical verses that Paul is writing to the young preacher Timothy regarding the conduct of believers in the house of God. And we see readily in verse number 15 the reason that Paul has written all these things. He says in verse 14, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come shortly unto thee, but if I tarry long, he says, This is why I've written these things, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. In other words, he writes to him and he gives him a responsibility, a a charge, and he says... Now, I've written all these things so you'd know how you ought to behave. And then, if I'm being honest, if we're not careful, verse 16 will almost seem strange and out of place. 
I don't know about you, but I like the strange and out of place passages. They fascinate me. I want to dig in and find out why it's said the way it's said. Because I believe my Bible's a 100% inspired, inerrant and preserved. And as such, I don't want to dismiss it. I want to dig into it and find out why. So before I give you the title, I'm going to do a little preaching. But don't worry, that's not extra preaching. That's part of the preaching. And it'll count against the preaching time overall. So don't get nervous. I want you to notice, number one tonight, that in verse number 15, there is a task that is issued. He tells Timothy, you have a certain responsibility that I am putting upon you. What is that responsibility? Well, notice the responsibility of this task. He says that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. Can I say this? Being a part of a New Testament church conveys responsibility on us. We have, I'm going to say that again because y'all made me nervous. Being a part of a New Testament church conveys responsibility upon us. You didn't just get a, a, a 10 subs and it's free card down at the subway when you joined a church. You entered into a holy covenant. You entered into a responsible relationship. And Paul is writing to no less than the very pastor of the church and saying, Timothy, you have certain responsibilities that are yours to uphold. And by the way, it's interesting to note that Paul doesn't try to convince Timothy that he ought to behave, but rather how he ought to behave. You know why that is? It ought not be a question of good behavior and bad behavior. We ought to all strive to be on our best behavior. We ought never seek to make the house of God the object of our abuses. I shudder to think one day, and I don't speak of anyone in this room when I say this, but I shudder to think sometimes when I've seen how people treat the church, that one day they're going to have to answer for that. I'll tell you this, there's a lot of things you could do to get me riled, but you offend my wife, you've done something top of the list. I mean, you can say a lot of things about me that I might tolerate and I might even agree with. But you say something against her, man, I'm talking about we're on touch and go ground. You know that the church is the bride of Christ. I've often thought and shuddered to myself, and people wouldn't believe this. They they just think I'm being spiritual, but I they all know that I'm not. (laughs) Why would I start now, amen? But I've often thought to myself when I've seen people set themselves against the house of God, lie about it and malign it, try to destroy it try to hurt people, try to sow discord, try to cause problems. I've often thought to myself, son, I wouldn't be the one caught out uh, twitching the nose of the bride of Christ. I wouldn't be the one out caught trying to stick my finger in her eye. I wouldn't be the one caught out uh, trying to besmirch and stain and destroy and hurt her. Because one of these days, hey, listen, the bridegroom's coming. And he's going to have something to say about that. And so he writes to Timothy, and he doesn't say, Timothy, you know, you ought to behave. Because every born-again believer should love the church as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. But rather, he says, you ought to know how to behave. Sometimes it's not that we don't have a desire to behave. Sometimes we don't know how to behave. 
And Paul wants us to know how to behave. He deals with the responsibility of this task. It's about behaving in the house of God. And that has been the context of this whole chapter. He's been dealing with how the pastor and how the deacons. And earlier in this book, he's been dealing with how the members are to conduct and comport themselves in the house of God. But then notice the gravity of this task. Now, it would have been enough to just say, behave yourself in the house of God. That would have been enough. If God tells us to do something, that's enough. But he doesn't stop there. He says this about the house of God, that it's the church of the living God. Aren't you glad we're the church of the living God? Not the church of the dead God. Not the church of the pretend God. We're the church of the living God. And then he calls it this, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, haven't we found that to be true in our society today? Haven't we found that as the church has been neglected and abandoned, that truth has had the legs cut out from under it in society around us? Why is that? Well, because men lost any anchor point to truth when they left the house of God. I'll tell you this, the world will tell you any lie you'll pay for. The world will tell you any lie you'll pay for. And nowadays we don't even pay for it with money. Money ain't even worth nothing anyway. We pay for it with our privacy. We pay for it with our details. We pay for it with our ad revenue. And so they're selling us lies and we don't even know we're buying them now. And we have reached a place in society where we have been completely unmoored from the truth around us. But Paul reminds us why it's so important we be on our best behavior at the house of God. Because it ain't no simple meeting house. It's a serious place. It's the pillar and the ground of the truth. By the way, that's true in your life as well. I'm going to tell you something. I hope you'll listen to it. You probably have very few people in your life that love you enough to tell you the truth. Probably very little of your family loves you enough to tell you the truth. Now, it's not that they don't love you. It's just they love themselves more. And they'd rather have a comfortable relationship than you have what's best for you in your life. Chances are your friends probably don't love you enough to tell you the truth. But I tell you, God's given us pastors and God's given us a church and God's given us his people so that we'd have folks that love us enough to tell us the truth. And that's why it's so dangerous to get out of church. It's because most people, when they get wrong with God, get all messed up and get out of church, they surround themselves with liars to help them to maintain that status quo. And he is challenging and charging and warning Timothy about why this is so important. Because what a travesty it would be for the pillar and the ground of the truth to become ground zero for foolishness, nonsense, deception, and decay. And he's saying, hey, it ain't no joke to be a part of a New Testament church. We see the responsibility of this task. We see the gravity of this task. But then in verse 16, he launches into this beautiful, mysterious in some ways verse. And hopefully we can unpack a little bit. But here's what I think it is. We see in verse 16 in that first phrase the clarity of this task. He says this to open this statement about the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, without controversy, that means there ain't no real argument to be had about it. Men argue about all kinds of foolishness, silliness, you know. I had an argument with a dear, close, personal friend the other day, convinced that an ACC team would be in the playoffs. And there's nothing you can do to people like that. You've got to love them and pray for them. And try to help them. But there really was no controversy. 
There's really no debate. And uh, by the way, playoff seeds came out anyway. All that matters, all that matters is that the Bible's saying here, hey, listen, there's really no real debate about it. Without controversy, and then he says this, great is the mystery of godliness. In this phrase, even though it may seem odd, it may seem illy fit into the frame of this passage, we find the key to why Paul says this in the first place. Now, the phrase mystery in the Bible means something a little different than what we're familiar with. When we think of a mystery, we think of something that uh, can be known and just merely has to be sort of searched out or ferreted out. One of my favorite things to read, you can call me carnal, I guess, uh, but I, I love, or I used to, I've read them all so many times, I know how they all end now, but I used to love to read the Sherlock Holmes stories. Uh, I used to love to read because I, I love to try to figure them out before old Sherlock figure them out. The only trouble was he saw something I didn't see and wasn't even in the book, and that's fair, unfair, and he's a cheater. But I kept reading them because I like to try to figure out and I enjoy that. I enjoy a puzzle. I enjoy something <coughs> that must be deduced and something that must be uh, sort of uh, uh, ferreted out and figured out. But that's not what the word mystery means in the Bible. It doesn't mean something that can be known. We just have to apply ourselves and use all of our faculties and gather all the information and search it out. Rather, the word mystery in the Bible means this. It means something that could not possibly be known because it had not yet been revealed but now has been disclosed and so is no longer concealed, but rather is open knowledge for all men to know. The Bible talks about various mysteries in the Bible. Earlier in this passage, the mystery of faith is spoken about. Elsewhere, the mystery of the dispensation of grace is spoken about. And there are several mysteries in the New Testament that are talked about here. But here, Paul says this, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, what is godliness? Godliness is godlikeness. It means the attributes, essence, character, and behavior of God. We could maybe say it this way. Paul says, you know, there's no debate about this thing, that what a glorious day it was when we finally learned what God is truly like. Now, why does he say that? He's just charged them. To behave themselves. And he didn't say, I wrote so you'd know to behave. Because everybody ought to know to behave. But he said, I wrote so you'd know how to behave. And he said, I know sometimes you struggle to know how to behave and what to do and what are the right decisions to make. says, but Timothy, don't ever forget that we are not left in the dark regarding what godliness or godlikeness looks like. Because though one time it may have been a mystery to mankind, though at one time we may have caught glimpses of God's character and personality, we may have had to sort of peer at Him through the lattice work like the little Shulamite girl in Song of Solomon, that now we do not live in the shadow moving starkly through dark moments, but we live in the blazing light of New Testament truth and in the glory of the revealed person of Jesus Christ. I don't want to get into my other messages, but I want to preach to you on this thought tonight. Here we see the incarnation viewed as a demonstration. 
And he says to Timothy, Timothy, you ought to behave yourself. And he could hear Timothy saying, but Paul, sometimes I don't know how I ought to behave myself. And Paul answers back and he says, you know, Timothy, that ain't going to hunt because God has showed us how we are to behave ourselves. He has revealed to us what God-likeness is. And he has done so through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We see, number one tonight, there is a task issued. But then we see here that there is a testimony that is recorded. Paul says, don't you remember, Timothy, all the things that you were taught, the things that you received of your most holy faith from your mother, from your grandmother, the things that you have borne record to from us that knew the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry, the men that walked with him and lived with him. What did you learn of what God is like? You know, and I, and again, I don't want to get into my other messages, but you know what Jesus Christ was? He was the manifestation of the person of God. He is God. So much so that he looked at Philip in John 14 and he said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, no man hath seen God at any time. But he said, the only begotten of the Father that was in his bosom hath declared him. He reveals who God is to us in a way that might be beheld and understood and then applied in our lives. What does he point to? Well, notice there's a few things mentioned in this testimony. Number one, notice the manifestation of his life. He says this, God was manifest in the flesh. When men beheld the conduct and character of the Lord Jesus Christ, they were not merely beholding a lesser imitation of who God is, but were in fact seeing in point and substance the very character and life of God being lived before them. I think sometimes men, when they think of this equation, they sort of think about it like, a, I don't know, like Jesus was the great value equate brand of who God was, you know? Like he was somehow some kind of lesser or diminished representation of who God was. But nothing could be further from the truth. You want to know exactly what God would do in any given situation? Look what Jesus did in that situation. For he was not just like God, but he in fact was God. For something to be manifest, it means to be brought into the light. It was not a new person that was... Uh, created at the moment of the conception of, uh, of uh, the body in, in uh, Mary's womb, but rather that that body, that shell, was inhabited by the person of God that had always existed. And he, in being born and walking amongst men, was not living out for the first time some form of, of, of behavior or virtue, but rather what he was doing is taking who and what he had always been, and bringing it into the light of human observation. That men might see it and know and understand. In other words, you say, preacher, how can I become more like God? You can do so by becoming more like Christ. You become like Christ, you're becoming like God. There are many situations God never found himself in in the Old Testament. Because he didn't walk amongst men. But what a precious truth it is. That God, seeing and knowing the desperate need of humanity to be able to have a God that could empathize with them and a God that could be an example for them, that he robed himself in flesh and walked this earth. He met liars and dealt with them the way that God dealt with liars. 
He met broken people and dealt with them the way that God dealt with broken people. He met lepers and dealt with lepers the way that God deals with those that are unclean and cast off. He dealt with those that were confused. He dealt with those that were possessed. He dealt with those that were despondent and discouraged. Those that were pridey and ha- prideful and haughty. He dealt with all these people and in doing so left us a template and a pattern whereby we could model our lives as well. We see here the manifestation of his life. He expressed the person of God. And that's what the Bible calls him, the express image of God's glory. He revealed who God was. But notice not only the manifestation of his life, but notice the message of his life. This is a phrase that I think trips some people up, and I don't think it should. The Bible says this about Jesus, that he was justified in the spirit. The word justified here is the general word for declaring a sinner to be righteous. It means to be vindicated or to be proved or pronounced righteous. You know, Christ came not only to live a human life, but also to live a holy life. That life received approval from heaven from time to time. The voice of God spake, but it didn't really receive its full endorsement until he rose from the dead. Paul wrote in Romans 1-4 that the Lord Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. In Romans 8-11, the apostle says that Christ was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was thus and then that Christ was justified in the Spirit. The Lord Jesus, who knew no sin, was made sin for us. And the wicked men who contrived his death thought that they had triumphed. They gathered together at Calvary to mock him as he died. But God had the last word. Three days later, Jesus was justified in the spirit by being raised from the dead, vindicated both in life and in death. Afterward, he declared, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. In other words, When it says justified, it does not mean to be made righteous, but rather to be pronounced or declared righteous. And whenever Paul points to the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying this, you know, not only did he walk righteously before all men, but the message of his life when it was all concluded, when it was all said and done, is that God endorsed the holiness of that lifestyle through the power of the Holy Spirit in raising him from the dead and thereby vindicating or justifying him before all men so that when they saw the power of the Spirit of God in and on his life, they had to acknowledge that he was the Son of God indeed. We see the message of his life. I've got to hasten. Notice the monitoring of his life. The Bible says this, that he was seen of angels. That's an interesting phrase. He was seen of angels. Of course, he was seen of angels. So why does Paul say it? Well, what he means is this. Angels gave attendance to every single moment of the life of the Lord Jesus. You find them at the birth of the Lord Jesus. You find them uh, at the baptism of the Lord Jesus. You find them during his burdens. You find them during his blessings. You find them all through his ministry. You find them attending his messages. You find them at moments of miracles. Uh, You'll find him not only as he dictated truth, but also as he died on Calvary's hill. You'll find him when he rose from the dead. There were angels there attendant uh, at the tomb. 
Everywhere that he went, he had angels beholding him and looking upon him. It tells me this twofold. One, he had a life that was monitored. But evidently, he had a life that was maintained as well. Because those same angels that were monitoring him saw everything that he did. I don't think they were there to make sure he was on his best behavior. I think they were there as ministering spirits to minister to him. But I do think this. I don't think they ever caught a moment of bad behavior. They beheld everything. And he lived. And this is probably sad to say. What a bunch of hypocrites we all are. But this is probably one of the most unique qualities of the Lord Jesus. Is that he was the same when the only person around was his father. As he was when everyone else was around. I don't know that any of us can say that that is really entirely, thoroughly, 100% true of us. But he was 100% the same person at all times. He was seen of angels. Notice not only the monitoring of his life, notice the ministry of his life. The Bible says this, he was preached unto the Gentiles. Now, why does he say it this way? And you may struggle to fit this in the framework of the chronology of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. There's not really a reason to struggle because by the time we get to John chapter number 12, We find a group of uh, Greeks being led uh, to Jesus by Philip. And they said this. They made this request. We would see Jesus. Hey, somebody had been preaching him to the Gentiles. But I think extending beyond that, the notion here is this. That he was not confined merely to those that were of his own flesh and blood relation. But rather that he went to those that those flesh and blood relation would have considered unclean and unfit. And went to them likewise as well. You'll find this to be a theme throughout the Gospels. There were not a lot of occasions in which he performed miracles upon Gentiles. But there were several. Enough so that we can conclude this. That he didn't. mm, How do I say this the right way? He didn't come to Israel because he loved them more than the Gentiles. He came to Israel because they were the people of God. And he didn't avoid the Gentiles because he loved them less than he loved Israel. But rather he did so because he was sent as the shepherd of the lost sheep of Israel. We find this, that his heart beat for the lost Gentile every bit as much as it beat for the lost Jew. And he shed his blood for them every bit as much as he did for those of his own countrymen. We see the ministry of his life. We see the magnitude of his life. It says this, he was believed on in the world. In other words, though not all men received him. There were a multitude of people around him that looked at his life, examined it, and accepted the evidence before their eyes that he was indeed who he said that he was. Peter, I think, is a grand example of this. Not just him, but the other disciples. But Peter has always seemed to be the one flapping his gums. One day Jesus asked him, said, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He said, Well, some men say that you're Elijah. Some men say you're... Jeremiah, some men say you're John the Baptist. Jesus said, who do you think I am? He said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Christ looks back at him and says, blessed art thou, Simon, son of Barjona. Uh, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my father which art in heaven. I'm saying this, he was convincing. The Bible says in John that if the... All the things that the Lord Jesus had done were written down. The world would not contain the volume of the books. But that those things written in the book of John were written thusly because they constitute a full, robust body of evidence for any lost, broken sinner to look with clear, objective eyes 
at the supernatural life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and walk away being convinced like that Roman centurion was that truly this is the Son of God. He convinced those that were willing to be convinced. The magnitude of his life was that men believed on him. It said once that whenever Napoleon was in exile on the island of Elba, that he was talking to one of his Gentile, Gentiles, <laughs> generals. There's Gentiles too, amen, I guess, maybe. Uh, talking to one of his generals. And uh, he looked at this general and he asked him, he said, who's the greatest military leader that ever lived? Greatest leader of men that ever lived. And uh, this fella, you don't get this far along in an outfit like that without knowing the right answer. He said, why you, you emperor. <laughs> and uh, Napoleon looked at him and smiled and he said, no, sir, it's not me. He said, the greatest leader of men that's ever lived was Jesus Christ. For he led men not at the point of a sword, but he won their hearts and caused them to march in their love for him. Some wisdom in what he said there. Paul said it this way simply, he was believed on in the world. And then notice the majesty of his life. He says this, he was received up into glory. Uh, we get a lot of packages at the house because we don't go places. And uh, you don't have to anymore. Uh, you can just get on, you know, that, that computer and punch things in. People bring you things. If you got a credit card, you ain't even got to pay for it. It just shows up, you know. And isn't it wonderful we live in a life free of consequences? And, uh, but we order a lot of things at the house, you know, and uh, I don't know how it is around your place. Uh, but the mailman, the mailman does pretty good. It's actually a male woman. I mean, not a male woman, <laughs> but a male woman. I mean, it could be a male woman. I don't know exactly. It, uh, yeah, I don't know about all that. It's the lady brings us her packages, and um, so uh, she she does she does pretty good. UPS, the ups man, he he does okay. The FedEx will tear up all of creation, bringing me a package. They'll back over the cat and the dog and the kid and the house. Uh, and so one of the things I don't trust them. If you got somebody that works there, don't be offended. Say something to them about it so that they can quit running over my landscaping. And uh, the but one of the things I'll do is I, I will look at a package before I take it in. Because you know how this is. I mean, I've got, I've got some of them look like they've been chewed on by a dinosaur. And uh, But I don't, I don't want those. I don't even want to fool with those. You take those back so it's never my responsibility. I'll only receive a package if everything looks right with it. Can I say this? When the Lord Jesus came to the close of his earthly ministry, when the Lord Jesus bowed his head on Calvary's hill and said, it is finished, he had finished the work that he had been sent to do. He, he, didn't, he didn't die because he's tired. He didn't die because he's weak. He died because he's finished. He bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. What took from him, he gave it up because he's finished. He had finished the work. And when 40 days later he had finished those events following the resurrection, the Bible says that uh, there on a hillside, gathered around by those that loved him, that after giving them a final commission, preach the gospel and to carry it and to wait for the power from on high, that he ascended up into heaven. And there was no dispute and there was no question and there was no conversation about whether or not the testimony of his life had been a fit offering 
for his heavenly father. He was received up into glory. Now you're going to say, all right, preacher, that was good. I appreciate that. Time to go eat a donut. But now wait a minute. I've not given you anything to do with it yet. Because in this passage, here's what we find. We find there is a task issued. We find there is a testimony recorded. And therefore, just by dint of those two realities, that Paul says, here's what you ought to do. You ought to behave yourself in how you live in the house of God amongst a broken world. You ought to behave yourself. And he says, this is how you ought to behave yourself. Therein, you know what we find? We find that there is a template that is offered. In other words, in beholding the immaculate life of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find within it the pattern and path and course of how we likewise should behave. Let's think about those few phrases again very quickly in closing. Think about that first one. The Bible says this, God was manifest in the flesh. You know, herein what we find is the divinity of what our life ought to be. You know, just as he manifests God to a broken and dark world, so likewise you and I ought to be manifesting God to a broken and dark world. You know, the fact is, some of y'all is the only semblance of God that men will ever see. They will look at your life, they will hear the word Christian, and they will make their mind up about Christ and the Father of Christ based upon how you live. And how you behave. You say, preacher, he's the light of the world. Well, here's what he said. He said, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. But when he was getting ready to leave the world, he looked at his disciples and he said, now you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. He said, I go to my father, but you're going to be here. He said, I've done great works. He says, but greater works you'll do because I go to my father and you stay here and remain. And he said this, that in lieu of me, in place of me, it's going to be your responsibility to represent, to convey, and to communicate the person and character and virtue of God to the world around you. We have no less high and holy of a responsibility than to show God to men through the way that we live. Preacher, how does the incarnation have anything to do with me? Tell you exactly how. Once God was incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, But now God manifests himself through the life that he lives through you to the world around you. As they behold, the, you know, that same Holy Spirit, that same Holy Spirit that lived in him lives in you. In fact, let's just go ahead and move on to that next one. That'll be that'll help us a little bit. We see the divinity of our life. But then he says this justified in the spirit. Now, what does that mean regarding our life? Well, it means this, that the only endorsement that is sufficient for the life of the born-again believer is the power and contentment of the Holy Spirit in resting upon and working through him. In other words, it means this, if we want to prove that we are who we say we are, we do so in the same way he did. He proved it by the power of the Holy Spirit on his life. And we likewise prove it by the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. I just mentioned in passing a few moments ago when talking about this phrase, Romans 8.11. Let me read that verse to you. Paul says in Romans 8.11, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies 
by his spirit that dwelleth in you. The spirit of God is the spirit of God. It is the spirit of Christ. It is the Holy Spirit. And he is that same self same spirit that indwells every believer. And it's interesting to note that in the earthly ministry of Christ, though him being a hundred percent God, he just nascently had the power. He intrinsically had the power to do any and everything he could have ever wished and wanted to do. But it was not until after the Holy Spirit rested upon him in the likeness of a dove at the River Jordan that he began to perform miracles. Remember hearing years ago, a Sunday school teacher say, well, when Jesus was a little boy, he probably went about healing broken, broken bird wings and, and, you know, uh, you know, uh, doing, no, he was a little boy, which means he went around stomping on birds and melting snails with salt like the rest of us. Amen. I don't care if you like that or not. That's what little boys do. That's what I did. That's what your little boys did. If you didn't ever catch them doing it, that's just because they're smarter than you. All right. It ain't because they didn't do it. All right. That's what that's what little boys do. And I'm sure the Lord Jesus did much the same thing. But uh, here's the reality. He didn't go around performing miracles. Not the Bible says it this way in John, chapter two, this beginning of miracles. Did Jesus Christ a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee? Why is that significant, preacher? Well, it tells me this, though he could have. He didn't until the full endorsement of the Holy Spirit was publicly witnessed upon his ministry. Why? So that men might recognize that it was through the power and ability of the Spirit of God that He performed the things that He did. Why did He do that? Because He knew one day you and I would be likewise equipped with that same Holy Spirit that indwells us and that would empower us to live a life of virtue and character like He did. I see the integrity of His life. Then I see the scrutiny of of our life and how our life ought to be lived. The Bible says this of Jesus, He was seen of angels. In other words, he everywhere went, there were divine eyes beholding him. And you know, your life and my life, we ought to live in such a way because it is, in fact, the very literal case that everywhere we, where we go, we live not for the eyes of men, but rather for the eyes of God. Uh, It'd clean a lot in our life up if we just wake up and realize God's everywhere. There's a lot of nonsense and foolishness would never get farther than a thought if we'd just be be common sense enough to recognize that we ain't never going to pull nothing over on God or hide anything from Him. And if we lived our life not for the pleasure of men, but rather for the pleasing of God, if we lived our life not that men's eyes might behold, but knowing that God's eyes always behold, what a radical transformation it would make in us. We see not only the scrutiny of our life, we see the ministry of our life. The Bible says that Jesus was preached unto the Gentiles. The truth of his message was carried even to those that were the least desirable regarding those that he's speaking to in this passage. And you know that likewise should be the case in us. It was unnatural for Christ to go to Gentiles. Unthinkable in that day and time. But he went to them anyway. Why? Because he loved them. And he was going to die for them. You know, in our life, we can't confine ourselves merely to those that we share common interests with or those that make themselves easy and convenient to show grace and mercy towards. If we do so, we're not living like Christ did. We're not living like Christ did. We're only living like Christ did when we'll go to those that it would be unnatural for us to have any empathy towards. 
I tell you, the person it's easiest for you to hate is probably the person you need to love the most. Some people are easy to hate. I mean, just easy to hate. They are. They, I mean, they're good at it. If it was an Olympic sport, they'd be on the top pedestal. You say, preacher, what do we do with those people? Well, we do what Jesus did with those people. He loved them anyway. Man, nobody easier to hate than a leper. It, I mean, it was easy. Nobody would even look at you funny for hating a leper. I mean, you'd get a dirtier look for kicking a dog than you would for hating a leper. But those were the very people that Jesus ministered to. I see the ministry of our life spoken of. I see the veracity of our life spoken of. It says this, that Jesus was believed on in the world. Why? Because he gave true, legitimate evidence in the testimony and record of his life. You know, we ought to live in such a way that the world can believe us. I'm not saying the world always will believe us. But some of us make it awful hard for the world to believe us. When we live and behave in a duplicitous way, when we just barely bend the, the, the truth and, and skirt that which is honest and legitimate, when we find every occasion to seek an advantage instead of standing on what's truth and what's integrity. Let me tell you something. When the world has to half beat the truth out of you, it'll never believe you. anything in your life is anything but a lie ever again. We all live in such a way that men don't have to doubt our word. They know that when we say something, it's not just technically true. It's true. It's true. We see the veracity of our life, but then I like this. We see the destiny of our life. It says this, received up into glory. It's good to know there's coming a day we're going to be received up into glory just like he was. And you say, preacher, what does I have to do with my life? How do I apply it? Well, it applies twofold. One, it ought to be a point of encouragement for us. In knowing, hey, this life is not the be-all, end-all. One of these days we're going to leave here. But it also tells me this. One of these days, just as he stepped up into glory, having been examined and seen fit before the eyes of God, one of these days we're going to have to stand before God and give an account for the way we lived our life as well. The criteria is not whether we'll be let in or not. That theology is from the funny papers. But rather, whether our life will have brought shame to the Lord Jesus or not. See, the incarnation was a lot of things. But one of the things it was was a demonstration for you and I that we might see in a way we could know and apprehend what godliness, godlikeness is. Here's what you and I ought to do in light of that truth tonight. We ought to look at our life and ask ourselves, if our life was laid like a transparency sheet over the testimony and record of the life of the Lord Jesus, what areas wouldn't match up? What areas are disconsonant with his character, his personality, and his behavior? And then here's what we ought to do. We ought to purge those things out of our life that we might be found more like him and more in his image. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. I invite you to come to the altar. God may have dealt with you about some matter personally in your life. It may not be some grave, dark, scarlet sin, but it's just not like Jesus. Shouldn't that be enough for us to want to get rid of it? It's not like Jesus. It's not how he would behave. It's not how he would conduct himself. Could be a point of anger or temper. Could be a point of complaintiveness, discontentment. Could be a point of dishonesty. Could be a point of disobedience. Some area in your life that the Holy Spirit has put his finger on and said, this needs to be addressed. Won't you come and meet the Lord in the altar?
tonight. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.